0: wait a minute, wait a minute. Who said there could be a net here?
1: (laughs) Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric.
0: And I'm Johanna.
1: And this week we are doing the film Dr. No. Now, this requires some explanation because we have been following Bond career order up to now. After the events of the prequels, we should have gone back to Live and Let Die, the first Bond novel to follow Casino Royale. But Dr. No fits better with the events unfolding currently on screen with the Daniel Craig movies. Namely, Eon finally got the rights back to Spectre, as we found out last week. So they're using the fuck out of it. So we're going to temporarily jump forward to mid-career Bond to see how Spectre was originally introduced in the series. The book reveals that this follows from Russia with Love because Bond is still recovering from, minor spoiler here, the poisoning he receives on that mission. M thinks sending Bond on a minor errand to see why Strangways and his secretary haven't radioed in is going to be like a vacation for him, so he sends him to Jamaica. Now, Q, who was only referred to as the Armorer at this point in the books, after the disastrous last mission, a.k.a. from Russia with Love, they take away his Beretta and give him the more formidable Walter PPK with which he's identified today
0: since we're starting with the first official bond film i'm I'm gonna say it's a good time to dive into Ian Fleming, uh, the author genius behind this character Ian Fleming uh, had his parents were very well off his father was a banker who actually died in World War one. Fleming grew up wealthy attended Eton College and in 1927. His mother sent him to the Tennerhof in Kitzbühel, Austria, a small private school run by the Adlerian disciple and former British spy, Ernan Forbes, hoping to prepare Ian Fleming for a possible job in the foreign office. It's kind of funny thinking about this, this little private school for spies that shows up in the comic version of Casino Royale and then maybe also shows up in skyfall a little bit. Probably had a huge impact on Ian Fleming. He then went to Munich and later Geneva for university, became a Navy intelligence officer in World War II, where one of his claims to fame is he planned Operation GoldenEye, which was designed to ensure Spain didn't join the Axis during World War II. When Ian Fleming retired, he ended up naming his home in Jamaica, Goldeneye, which is where he did a lot of his writing for the James Bond character, and the the Goldeneye theme returns again and again. A lot of the materials that show up in James Bond are based on Ian Fleming's experience in Navy intelligence. He published Casino Royale in 1952, and 11 more Bond novels followed. Reviews for the first five books were very positive, but then after that, they started... The critics started to take note of a strongly marked streak of voyeurism and sadomasochism and wrote that the book showed the total lack of any ethical frame of reference. <laughs> Ian Fleming died in 1964, so he lived long enough to see Dr. No and actually some of the later books that were published after the film's release were greatly influenced by Connery's performance of Bond up until Dr. No was released. The James Bond books were, I mean, not totally serious. Anyone who has seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is also based on an Ian Fleming novel, his one children's novel, anyone who has seen that will know that Ian Fleming was not a totally serious dude. But the Bond novels were more or less like straightforward spy novels. And then once this film came on the scene, it took an even cheekier turn. The film Doctor No was financed for only one million dollars, so a lot of one, $1 million. million dollars. <laughs> so a lot of the a lot of the sets and special effects were um, made of cardboard or you know faked, and we'll get into that later when we discuss the film. This had made it a little bit easier for them to take a somewhat humorous approach to the storyline and the character, but a lot of this humorous approach is credited to the director Terence Young who thought that adding the humor in would make it easier to get around the censors because of all of the sex and violence. So, you know, making a little tongue-in-cheek was their way of getting around the standards of 1960s. There were some other elements that were originally in the works for this film that would have made it not just funnier, but, like, grotesque to the point of there may never have been other Bond films, for instance... (laughs) At one point, the script called for changing Dr. No's character to a monkey. What? I don't know. Maybe someone in the writer's room confused Dr. No with the island of Dr. Moreau. Not sure how that was going to work out. But they hired a script doctor, Johanna Harwood, calling her out, Johanna Harwood, only because she's, you know, I don't know, maybe a possible namesake of mine. And she fixed the script to make it more faithful to the novel. There were a few men who were considered before Connery for the Bond part, among them Cary Grant and David Niven, but there was a concern that those actors would, you know, maybe come in for only one Bond film and then leave because they already had a very successful career. Connery won them over with his scruffy, devil-may-care attitude, and then Terrence Young took him under his wing, showed him the high life, you know, took him gambling, took him to meet posh women, and uh, managed to get connery to embody the suave witty super polished side of bond as well the reception for the film uh the vatican condemned dr no describing it as a dangerous mixture of violence vulgarity sadism and sex whilst the kremlin said that bond was the personification of capitalist evil Bad reviews for the film, which, of course, naturally made everyone want to go see it. (laughs) So Dr. No actually ended up being re-released several times in the theaters in conjunction with the follow-up bonds. It would play in the drive-in as a double feature with From Russia with Love and also with Goldfinger. So although the film only cost a million dollars to make, it ultimately ended up grossing about 60 million dollars worldwide. That's how you make a movie.
1: Let's all go to the lobby (laughs) to get
2: ourselves a treat.
0: All right, Gabby, what, what's going on in the lobby?
2: So I continued with my love of transforming the Vesper. Similarly, the way that all of these movies sort of reimagine his storyline and his character and, I went a little bit more exotic with it. I went with um, a gin, Averna, and creme de violette pairing, which is new and sort of a little bit curious, but works. The Averna switch out for the vodka is a little bit bolder of a move on my part just because it's an Italian Amaro, it's bittersweet. A lot of the time you see it as working alone or sort of being paired up against. Cocktails that are bourbon or rye based because it just brings a lot to the table. Gin is also one of those spirits that has a lot of flavor to play with, it has a lot of character. And so, this is a little bit darker, bolder, a little bit, almost a little bit brooding, but no less light on its feet in terms of being really smooth, it has that floral note that the original Vesper. Bond cocktail brings with Lelay and it has a classic power player, which is gin that you see sort of right off the bat being his signature in the Vesper because he asks for three parts gin. (laughs) Bond is a character that really when he's focusing, quote unquote, he likes to have one drink before dinner, but he likes it to be strong. This is 100% along those lines and also brings like some new flavors to the table. A little bit different, a little mysterious. It's got a little bit of secrets.
1: Well, this is a really great concoction. And when we finally get the website up with all the show notes, I will definitely put the recipe for this up for everyone to make it at home.
2: Thank you. It's great to have something that moves and that can transform with it when you're tasting it.
1: Great. Now that we all have a cocktail in hand, let's jump into the film, Dr. No. I have a lot to say about how it differs from the book, Dr. No, but rather than give a full book report, I'll mention that as it comes. First, let's start out with what did you like about this particular Bond film, Johanna? I know it's your favorite.
0: So one of the things I really loved about Dr. No revisiting it this time around is seeing how much attention is paid to spycraft. In some of the later Bonds, the attention to spycraft, like how is it that you go about, you know, gathering intelligence, like, you know, making sure you have, have the right weapon, All the tricks that Bond does, like pasting the hair over the door. There's so much of that in this film that doesn't show up in the later Bond films. The later Bond films, there's a lot of chasing punctuated by, you know, like really tense meetings with the villain where they're both pretending that they don't know who each other are or whatever. (laughs) So it was really nice to see in this film, you know, especially when Bond is on his own in Jamaica, which is, you know, how we sort of think about Bond is mostly taking care of himself. Reporting every once in a while to the folks at MI6, every once in a while checking in with Felix Leiter and, you know, having a meeting with him, but mostly conducting his own research, figuring out where the leads are, chasing them down. You know, you see Bond doing a lot of real spy work in Dr. No, which I didn't realize how much I missed from the later films until I revisited this one. And maybe it's because this was cheap. Like it's cheap showing Bond going from from meeting to meeting and, you know, going to inquire with the professor like, hey, I've got these rock samples. Do you think this means anything? You know, like maybe it's because those scenes were cheaper. Maybe it's because it's the 60s and, you know, the slow burn was, you know, more appealing then than it is to audiences now. But this is what a Bond film is supposed to be, in my opinion.
1: The book, of course, has even more of that. And there are a number of similarities to the book, and there are a number of differences from the book. But some of that has to do with the medium itself. So I think they did do things that were uh, less expensive to do, like you said, the spycraft stuff. There's other stuff that they tried to do, such as there's a a, um, crab attack scene. (laughs) I'll just leave it at that. It ended up looking as ridiculous as it sounds, so they cut that. But it has a lot of great things about it, too. Felix Leiter, who was not in the book, was added for this, and Jack Lord was the perfect casting. for. He's got to be like the best Felix Leiter in the whole film, or in all the films. And I think that a lot of other things that sort of were played up for their appeal... Visually or auditorially, (laughs) the whole island of Dr. No is all about guanara, basically guano um, processing, which is bird shit. And they changed it to bauxite because I don't think like bird shit would have been, um, it might be a little weird on screen. They uh, also played up the rocket angle. Of course, this was like right in the midst of the space race. So having this evil Dr. No with uh, his plan to disrupt the U.S. space program fits really, really well with what was going on, especially in the Caribbean area, which is, of course, not far from Cape Canaveral. In addition to that, the music that really is just, barely mentioned in the book, is really played up for the film, Calypso, which is the national music of Jamaica. And it's really great. And it was having a moment at that time in the popular culture. So it's just perfect for this film.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, I had forgotten that Sean Connery sings in this film. And I'm sure that they had to do like a million takes or something. um, But he has a nice voice. And I have now had um, underneath the mango tree, my honey and me. I've had that stuck in my head all week. It's very catchy. It is. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. So why don't you take us through some of the plot?
0: Yeah. So once, once he gets to Jamaica and starts poking around into what's happening. He's led from one person to the next. But first, as soon as he gets to the airport, he immediately figures out that this person who's shown up to, like, pick him up at the car is not above board. And this is where we first get to see Bond being a good spy. Immediately suspicious (laughs) of, of what's happening, makes a quick phone call, gets in the car anyway, and... I think that that's like a really big point about the Bond character is he's not exactly cautious. He's just in control all the time. He knows that the driver is up to no good, gets in the car anyway. The driver, of course, ends up crunching down on a cyanide pill and and Bond isn't able to get very much information out of him. But then when he shows up and... (laughs) the dead guy's at the back of the car and Bond says, keep an eye on him, will you? Or like, make sure he doesn't get away or something like that. Thereby, you know, also showing his utter lack (laughs) of reverence for the dead. (laughs) Just like, you get so much of this character in how he arrives at this place and shows he's fully in charge. He is serious about his mission, but seems like he doesn't have very many fucks to give. Basically, I think he wins the audience over very, very quickly, even from the first moment when you see him off screen. Like when you first introduce to Bond, you just see his hands. You know he's playing Baccarat, but you don't even see Bond until the camera pans up and oh, Bond, James Bond.
1: Then we jump into what I call the classic Bond formula, where Bond arrives in some exotic locale, starts to investigate things. Then there are a number of attempts on his life. We already mentioned the person that was supposed to pick him up at the airport. Later on in the evening, he's back at the place he's staying, and there's a scene where a tarantula is released into his room. I find that a little silly because tarantulas are pretty harmless right in the book it's actually a centipede which are venomous and dangerous in the tropics but i don't know maybe it's a reference to there is a scene later on in the book where he's crawling through the tunnels to escape and he gets trapped and is surrounded by tarantulas and it's in a very tight space and it's heated up to the point where they're going to start biting him classic (laughs) that a whole mass of tarantulas chomping on you that might actually be pretty dangerous but tarantulas in general don't bite and aren't very venomous and dangerous to humans as far as i know
0: oh yeah this is one of the classic low low budget special effects that they tried to set up and if you look very closely you can see that in one of the shots where the tarantula is ostensibly like crawling over Bond's shoulder and is in the shot, that the tarantula is actually on top of a sheet of glass that is separating the tarantula from Connery, but was not separating... The tarantula from uh, the stuntman, Simmons, who said it was like one of the most terrifying stunts he's ever had to perform is letting the tarantula crawl over his shoulder. I think exotic creatures is like a key part of the Bond universe.
1: (laughs) Damn straight.
0: While we're on the subject of the tarantula, though, one of the things I love about Dr. No is it's just full lean into camp territory. So like when Bond is smashing the tarantula with his shoe and you get the music timed out with it, bam, 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 bam. I love that.
1: (laughs) Was that actually camp? I don't know. Maybe that was just normal for the time and we're now used to a more restrained use of the soundtrack. Oh, sure. Then again, it may have just been that whoever scored the film was competing with the likes of Jump Up, Jump Up, which was a hit song in Jamaica, the song that was playing in the club, and didn't want to get forgotten when compared to all the Calypso songs in the film.
0: The use of music in this film is really interesting because you get the theme coming back again and again. It keeps things flowing and helps maintain that sense of like, oh, something something mysterious is going on. And likewise, the music that really punctuates the action scenes helps draw attention to that in a film that is very low budget and where it's hard to create that sense of like, oh, there's action and there's suspense. Like, we're not going to have a ton of explosions to get your adrenaline up all the time. Music has to do a lot of work in this film.
1: Let me jump into cast real quick. Ian Fleming wanted to cast Noel Coward for Dr. No, but... Uh, Noel Coward declined. Lois Maxwell was a friend of the producers, and when her husband died, she was offered a role in the film. She could either play Sylvia or Miss Moneypenny, and she chose Moneypenny, which turns out to have been a good decision in the long run. Uh, other people who were hanging around set, John Derrick, mm-hmm. who was there as a photographer to take photos of his then-wife, Ursula Andress. Pictures that he took of her actually ended up getting her the role. Bunny Yeager was asked to be the set photographer. Bunny Yeager, famous for taking sort of the Tarzan-inspired photos of Betty Page. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Ursula Andress may not be the greatest actress in the world, but she has all the necessary assets to be the consummate Bond girl.
0: Uh, her voice was actually dubbed for this film. Her beautiful, sun-drenched, spray-tan body trying to look as Jamaican as possible and absolutely stunning when she comes out of the water. But all of her lines were dubbed by actress uh, Nikki Vanderzuel to hide Andress's extremely heavy Swiss-German accent.
1: Andrus, of course, plays Honeychow Ryder, who is one of the more interesting characters in the Bond universe. She is a little bit different in Fleming's book. She's completely naked throughout most of it. She has a broken nose. Uh, It's the one flaw in her beauty. Neither of those do we see in the film, of course. But I have a, a fan theory here. I haven't found any evidence to support it, but I think that... Ian Fleming was very influenced by the Pulps, particularly Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan, as we've mentioned before. This character is very Tarzan-like. She's referred to actually in the book as a, quote, girl Tarzan, unquote. We know that Ian Fleming at least was a fan of pulp crime writers because he cited a few of them as influences and was known to correspond with Rabin Chandler. So we know that he read Crime Pulps. I don't know about the Adventure Pulps, but I think that it was inspired by Tarzan and also H. Ryder Haggard, who wrote King Solomon's Minds and She. In fact, She was adapted into a film just three years later and in the title role was cast.
0: Ursula Andress.
1: You guessed it, Ursula Andress. Yes. The other big pulp influence, it seems to me, Sax Romer's Dr. Fu Manchu seems like the pattern for Dr. No. Of course, both of these writers, all these writers are kind of troubling when it comes to race by modern standards. And so that influence seems to transfer here to the screen as well in numerous places when referring to ethnically African or Asian peoples. But be that as it may I believe Fleming was influenced by these writers.
0: Well, I think it's a very convincing theory and now I'm going to have to go back and finish reading Dr. No.
1: Okay. Let's talk about Sean Connery.
0: One of the things that I found myself thinking about throughout this film is what is so appealing about the Bond character. So much of which is established in this first film and To me, one of the most interesting things about the character is that he indulges in pretty much every possible vice. Uh, Yep. And really indulges in it, but always in a controlled way. And then I wonder if some of the Bond character's appeal is this fantasy of being the sort of person who could truly indulge and enjoy in womanizing, in drinking too much, in murdering people, in having a little bit of an adrenaline craze and going a car chases or, you know, like all those kinds of things that Bond gets to do, but always while adjusting his cufflinks. Like, always, like. and I feel like Connery does a really great job of establishing that combination of indulgence, but with control, with moderation, that we all wish we could do both. And too often... You know, if you drank as much as Bond did, there would be no stopping you. You would be, like, it would be a totally different kind of character than somehow Bond is able to, you know, have as many martinis as he wants to and is still totally in control.
1: One of the things I really like about this film, though, is although Bond has all of those excesses, he's also very human. They were still trying to figure out exactly the Bond formula. So Connery does have a bit of an over-the-top quality, but also a bit of an everyman quality. And you see him human, humanized in a way we don't see again in the series until Daniel Craig comes around.
0: Yeah, there's so much of this that setting the template for future films, but then also has elements that seem completely counter to the other Bonds. Like, and, and now we're going to jump ahead, but the scene when Bond is crawling through the tunnels with the shirt torn, like straight out of Die Hard. I know that in the books it's different because it's set up as a test of some kind by Dr. No. It's not an escape opportunity. But that element of seeing Bond worn down with his shirt torn, having to tie the cloth around his hands in order to avoid the scalding pipes from these steam tunnels. That seemed like out of a completely different genre than the Bond genre, where you see him do a lot of chasing, but you do not see him in pain, exhausted in rags. This was a very different kind of Bond moment.
1: So I think they really Hit the nail on the head when they cast Connery, because there were a lot of people they were considering for the role.
0: Yeah, Cary Grant, David Niven, and Patrick McGowan, who I I'm gonna have to look up his look up his name again because I had never heard of this guy. Patrick McGowan, who was famous for playing Danger Man, was also considered.
1: I seem to recall. Hearing a story that even way back then, Roger Moore was one of the choices they were looking at. But then they saw Sean Connery in Darby O'Gill and The Little People, if you can believe it.
0: That's what you. So I heard rumors to the contrary because apparently Roger Moore says nothing about this in his memoir. So he may have been considered, but Roger Moore was not aware if he was at the top of that list.
1: Well, whatever the case, we know that Sean Connery was not at least initially, Ian Fleming's favorite pick. It's been speculated, and I think we've mentioned before, David Niven, Mm -hmm. a few others were much more to his liking. Ian Fleming did have a lot of say on things and was present on set for a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. He became friends with Ursula Andress. Yeah. And in fact, Ursula Andress is mentioned in Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service, which makes her one of the only real world people mentioned in the Bond universe. Mm-hmm. The reason Ian Fleming was on set so much was a lot of the shooting took place right near his property, the Goldeneye Estate in Jamaica. Yeah. This is the second story, actually, that takes place in Jamaica for Bond, the first one being Live and Let Die. And it's a shame, I think, that they didn't do Live and Let Die first, because Live and Let Die would have introduced Quarrel, and then his sacrifice would have been much more poignant— And it also introduced Strangways. So Bond actually has someone Mm -hmm. he's already acquainted with that he has to go look for. And the disappearance of Strangways makes Bond question that something is amiss faster than maybe some of the other members of MI6, like M. But I'd say that Jamaica is only one of many exotic locations that Bond visits. Exotic locations seem to be a staple of this particular series.
0: Well, this will be something for us to return to in future Bonds as well. But I think an important element of the escapism that we get to enjoy as audience members is also showing us what's at home. So like you get Jamaica with the music and the beach and you you get all those beautiful set pieces in in that film and in every subsequent film but what's really important is that they bring you back to the home office where money penny is like like and not a turtleneck but like short buttoned up to the very top button with like a brooch holding it together and then long sleeves and like a long skirt you know like Money Penny is so prim and proper and then M likewise like very, you know, very reserved. And the fact that you see that as a representation of what normal life is like, what it's like at home, what it's like in Britain versus what it's like when Bond's off on these adventures. I think I'm not going to say that Money Penny is the everyman character for us in the Bond universe, but maybe the closest thing.
1: And every woman.
0: Every woman. Yes.
1: So exotic locations are an important part of the Bond mythology. You know, Ian Fleming even wrote a book called Thrilling Cities, basically a travelogue type book. And Bond, of course, James Bond was, as we've said before, named after an ornithologist. So I think it's a shame that they didn't get more great footage of the wildlife of the West Indies, birds in particular, not only do they figure into the plot of this movie, but it would have enriched the experience just a little bit.
0: Well, can we test your shark meter? Are we allowed to test your shark meter now that we're on the island in Doctor No's hideout? Peep, beep. Is your shark meter going off? Peep,
1: beep, beep. Yeah. Peep. <laughs> but not for the reason you'd think. <laughs> this film didn't have any sharks in it. But the book. Did If you remember, there's a scene in Dr. No's lair where they're looking out a window and onto the sea itself that's below the water level. And in the book, the window is sort of this magnifying lens to the ocean, and a shark swims right up to and by the window uh, when Bond enters the room and is looking at it. It's
0: very... Very sad to see that um, done on their, you know, very small budget as I think like literally goldfish where it's like, you know, stock footage of goldfish, which they've then magnified to make them look like bigger fish (laughs) than they actually are. And that's the best they could do. Yeah.
1: And (laughs) ill-tempered sea bass was the best they could do. (laughs) But but we'll throw them a friggin bone. okay? so there was a giant squid.
0: So ding 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 the shark meter goes off for the giant squid. <laughs> yeah,
1: they promised us a dragon and we got a giant squid, but you know.
0: Yeah, the the lines between quarrel and bond about the dragon, that there's a dragon on the island, like as as an additional element of this and that honey also like kind of believes in the dragon and you know, oh, well, unless it, you know, runs on diesel engine or whatever Bond says. But like, one of the things I like about the Bond universe in general is this sort of playfulness. Sometimes it is at other characters' expense, which is unfortunate. You know, I feel like, you know, Quarrel and Honey both deserve more than to believe in dragons. <laughs> but but on the other end, it's fun that the Bond universe also involves gadgets and and a little bit of, you know... Playfulness
1: there. Yeah, and some of that playfulness was actually written into the stories by Fleming himself, either intentionally or not. But also, some of the playfulness is added by the filmmakers. A lot has been added by the filmmakers in big and small ways. And this one of the little Easter eggs I love is the Goya painting.
0: Oh, yes, I'm so glad you're bringing this up.
1: The Goya painting. That is seen in Dr. No's lair is a portrait of the Duke of Wellington that was stolen in 1961, and then they included it in this as if Dr. No was secretly behind it, a little Easter egg that hinted toward uh, an actual real-world current event.
0: And apparently the reproduction was so convincing that someone actually stole it off the set. They they like—they decided to add this in at the last minute, and some poor. Guy had to, like, stay up all night reproducing this Goya painting and did such a good job that that was stolen, too.
1: So, any final thoughts?
0: Um, just really looking forward to digging into the Connery Bonds more. Uh, he's my favorite of the actors who have portrayed James Bond. Just, like, that sly charm mixed with, you know, really believable macho power, which... You know, I think Roger Moore does a great job of tapping into some of the, you know, natural comedy that could surround the James Bond universe. I think Connery does a great job of playing the straight man to the rest of everything else happening around him. And this film, um I don't know, this might Doctor No might be my favorite Bond.
1: I don't think it's my favorite. But you're certainly in good company. Many people rank this as among the best, if not the best, Bond film. So that wraps it up. I want to remind everyone to like and follow us and tell, just tell a friend about it. We need to spread the word so more people can find us. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off.